the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Yes, I said the Wednesday edition. There's complete clarity today on the program. Thank you, Sam. Today's program is being produced by James Blend and engineered by Sam Maupin. Today in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll hear from Brian Stiller, author of From Jerusalem to Timbuktu, A World Tour of the Spread of Christianity. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, of course, the big news item is what's happening with the FBI, the Department of Justice, and former President Donald Trump. Well, Trump moved and hid classified records at Mar-a-Lago, the Department of Justice uh, filing claims, and the controversy continues. Well, the department pursued a search warrant for Mar-a-Lago because investigators suspected the former president and his associates relocated and hid highly classified records despite claiming that they returned such privileged information to the government. That's what a Tuesday court filing from the department revealed. Well, the filing came after the president's petition for a special master to conduct an independent review of material seized from his residence. A motion which a judge said that she was um, she had preliminarily in, uh, had preliminary intent to grant, but which the Department of Justice opposes cited potential injury to national security interests. Well, taking inventory of the confiscated materials, the filing said that over 100 documents and 13 boxes of containers uh, with classification markings, uh, markings rather, were taken from the property. Three classified documents were seized from the desk of the president's uh, office. It noted the federal judge's uh, list of seized property included roughly 20 boxes of items, binders and photos, a handwritten note, a executive grant of clemency for Roger Stone, a well as well as inf- information about French President Emmanuel Macron. Well, after the raid of his Florida home, the former president insisted he had been cooperating fully with authorities for months to return missing presidential records, making the surprise search unwarranted. And while the filing clarifies in more detail the turning point in the investigation into Trump's retention of government documents, most of what was written in it was already revealed in the affidavit detailing the probable cause for the search of Mar-a-Lago, which a federal a magistrate judge unsealed last week. Well, the affidavit was released with many parts redacted, 38 pages or 36 pages, 20 pages heavily redacted. Some legal scholars, such as Jonathan Turley, attorney and professor George uh, at George Washington University Law School, suspect that the full filing simply details what was omitted in the affidavit. However, the filing contained a picture of at least five yellow folders recovered from Mar-a-Lago, marked top secret, and another red one labeled secret. Well, the search warrant outlined three possible criminal charges against the former president, including an alleged violation of the Presidential Records Act, misuse of classified information, and obstruction of justice. The prosecutors are apparently trying to build a criminal case against the former president after finding evidence that government records were likely concealed and removed from the storage room at Mar-a-Lago, the filing hinted, and the New York Times reported. 
Efforts were likely undertaken to obstruct the government's investigation. So that sounds speculative. On May 11th, the Department of Justice attorneys obtained a subpoena to collect all materials designated as classified that were yet returned, uh, not yet returned by the former president, a request that um, uh, with which his team said they complied. Uh, A Trump lawyer believed to be Christina uh, Bob uh, wrote a statement promising that everything in which the subpoena replied was returned after a diligent search. However, the Department of Justice then claimed to uncover evidence that this was not true and outstanding documents remained. So the back and forth, as uh, mentioned, continues. Now, Andrew McCarthy, who's been writing extensively and following closely what's happening, suggests that the Department of Justice's filing suggests that a Trump indictment is coming. Uh, He writes that the former president is facing a very serious prospect of being indicted for obstruction of justice and causing false statements to be made to the government. That is the upshot of a court submission filed by the Justice Department on Tuesday night in response to the Trump camp's belated motion for the appointment of a special master to review materials seized some three weeks earlier from the former president's Mar-a-Lago estate. Last week, what an extensively redacted version of the affidavit supporting the Mar-a-Lago search warrant was released, I opined that perhaps the most overlooked sentence in the document was this one. There is also probable cause to believe that evidence of obstruction will be found at the premises, end quote. The government's Tuesday night court filing bears that out. Well, and he suggests that there are several reasons. One is there's no claim of declassification. That in January of this year, when the former president initially surrendered 15 boxes of presidential records, only after months of pleading by the National Archives and Records Administration, which finally prompted the uh, uh, organization to warn that it would have to involve Congress if Trump persisted in ignoring the Presidential Records Act, a uh, prodigious amount of classified information was included. At the time that uh, that this material, 184 distinct documents containing over 700 page Pages uh, classified at the highest levels was handed over to the NARA. Uh, Trump made no claim that it had been declassified. Furthermore, in subsequent correspondence, even that organization pointed out that much of the material appeared to be classified. Trump's counsel never made any claim that Trump had declassified any of it, much less all of it. An implied admission that nothing was ever declassified. The government clearly had witnesses that have yet to be identified. False statements, including under oath to the FBI and the grand jury, were apparently uh, allegedly made. And the uh, government did not agree to Trump's retention of records, which he barred uh, government officials from inspecting. The classified documents were delivered on June the 3rd. Obstructive conduct, uh, conduct rather, and fears of witness tampering. Uh, And these are the reasons that um, McCarthy believes uh, that the president is, in fact, facing an indictment at some point following the midterm elections. The FBI said they didn't want to influence the elections. But, of course, this activity at this time has already influenced the election Uh, in separate posts. um, There have been some observations about the legal arguments posited by the Justice Department in rebuttal to the Trump special master motion. The objective has been to focus on obstruction. And we'll continue to follow that story uh, into this uh, ongoing saga involving the former president. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break, but we'll continue our analysis of the day's news in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
Continuing to wind our way through the news, calling it a slap in the face, working class taxpayers are blasting the president's student loan handout and raising credibility concerns. Liberal media is giving airtime to Intel officials, despite dubious comments they've made about Trump and Hunter Biden. 2022 Heisman hopefuls C.J. Stroud and Bryce Young are among the favorites to win college football's top prize. In a potential family feud, a trust linked to Gavin Newsom's in-laws made a contribution to the DeSantis PAC, Political Action Committee. Save for America, President Biden turned his uh, Pennsylvania policy speech into a political event, urging his audience to vote for the slate of Democratic candidates, making some of the Marines who were there to play in the band a bit uncomfortable. Urging young readers to fight like, well, you know what, for Stacey Abrams, Teen Vogue shared a strong message of support for the progressive Democrat. Uh, Teen Vogue previously pushed an abortion guide on its website as well. Do you know what your sons and daughters are reading? Money loss. The Washington Post is reportedly on pace to lose money this year after years of profitability during the Trump era. Following the constant news cycle during the Trump presidency, business at the Democracy Dies in Darkness papers business has stalled so much that their 5 by 25 initiative to reach 5 million digital subscribers by 2025 may be out of reach. The organization is on track to lose money in 2022 after years of profitability, the Times wrote on Tuesday. The Post now has fewer than 3 million paying digital subscribers. It had hailed internally uh, nearly uh, near the end of 2020. Uh, Digital ad revenue generated by the Post fell to roughly $70 million during the first half of the year, about 15 percent lower than in the first half of 2021. Applauding them for finally fighting like Republicans, MSNBC's Stephanie Rule praised Democrats on the student loan handouts and shaming Republicans. Well, inflation is eating away at Americans' paychecks. That's not really news. You know that already. And forcing them to trade down in order to uh, stretch their dollars. But strong demand for beauty products shows consumers are still spending on their looks. And if you're going to be broke, you might as well look good. With sales on the rise, companies are jockeying for position and an uh, increasing number are leaning into the beauty space for a piece of the action. Republicans demand Facebook disclose communications with the FBI on the Hunter Biden laptop. Uh, Republican senators are demanding that the um, social media giant turn over its communications with the FBI regarding Hunter Biden. The American people deserve to know whether the FBI used Facebook as part of their alleged plan to discredit information about the uh, president's son. Senators Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson wrote to Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg's admission to podcast host Joe Rogan on uh, that Facebook de- um, decreased distribution of the Hunter Biden laptop story ahead of the 2020 election at the bidding of the FBI has sparked a massive backlash. Senator Chuck Grassley says the FBI's ill-conceived actions not only interfered in our congressional investigation by frustrating and obstructing our ability to advance the matters under review, it also interfered with the 2020 election. And some suggest they're poised to do just the same, midterm and general. A senior FBI agent has resigned amid scrutiny for helping bury the Hunter Biden investigation. The Washington Time reports that a senior FBI official in the Bureau's Washington field office has abruptly resigned after coming under congressional scrutiny for suspected political bias and handling the investigation of Hunter Biden's laptop computer. The Times learned that Timothy Thibault, an assistant special agent in charge, was forced to leave his post. The information came from two former FBI officials familiar with the situation. 
Thibault had already been on leave since FBI Director Christopher Wray revealed during a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing earlier this month that he found the whistleblower claims against the agent and his colleague, the FBI supervisory intelligent analyst Brian Auten, deeply troubling. Some Republicans have insisted that Thibault may have been motivated by malicious political bias, pointing to his social media history, including a retweet of a Lincoln Project uh, message that called former President Trump a psychologically broken, embittered and deeply unhappy man, end quote. California passed a so-called FAST Act, allowing the government to set wages for fast food workers. Governor Newsom has until the 30th of next month to sign or veto the bill. The Wall Street Journal says California's legislature passed a bill on Monday to create a government panel that would set wages for an estimated half million fast food workers in the state, a first in the U.S. approach to workplace regulation that labor union backers hope will spread nationally. The bill, known as the FAST Act, would establish a panel with members appointed by the governor and legislative leaders composed of workers, union representatives, employers and business advocates. They would set hourly wages of up to $22 an hour for fast food workers starting next year and can increase them annually by the same rate as the consumer price index up to a maximum of 3.5%. Well, that puts an end to fast food that you won't be able to afford in California. The Associated Press weighs in, saying the bill grew out of a union movement to boost the minimum wage. And Andrea said it would uh, work in conjunction with traditional union organizing to give more workers a voice in their working conditions. One year after the botched Afghanistan withdrawal, the Department of Defense's attempt at a victory lap pretty much fell flat. The withdrawal from Afghanistan has proved Biden's poor leadership, which has led to Russia and China making aggressive moves against our neighbors. Uh, Spencer Brown says the utterly tone deaf declaration that no one should doubt America's resolve to keep our people safe ignores the reality that just more than one year ago, the administration failed to keep its people safe when the ISIS-K suicide bomber killed 13 U.S. service members and scores of Afghan allies as a result of the leadership, intelligence and planning failures. General Lloyd Austin says, we also know that preventing terrorist violence requires much more than military might. We're committed to supporting a whole of government effort to address the root cause of violent extremism. No one should doubt America's resolve to keep our people safe. But many do, in fact, doubt that resolve. Sadly, many are our national enemies. Two months after the Afghanistan withdrawal, Russian President Vladimir Putin, uh, Putin rather, renewed a major buildup of troops near the Ukrainian border in October of 2021. On the 24th of February of this year, Russia invaded Ukraine in a bloody and economically devastating war that continues to this day. Russia is successfully wielding gas as a weapon of war against the West. Uh, Again, the Wall Street Journal uh, writes that Russia is set to shut its key Nord Stream natural gas pipeline on Wednesday for maintenance, leaving Europe guessing again about whether supplies will restart as temperatures fall and demand for fuel grows. Whatever the outcome, European officials and energy executives say the continent faces years of high energy prices and possible shortages as efforts to replace Russian imports clash with limited supplies elsewhere and regulations that discourage Um, hydrocarbon usage. Reuters reports that Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov said on Tuesday, technological problems caused caused by Western sanctions of Russia are the only thing standing in the way of supplying gas via Nord Stream 1. But France's energy transition minister 
uh, said that very clearly Russia is using gas as a weapon of war and we must prepare for the worst case scenario of a complete interruption of supplies. Nikki Haley's nonprofit donors have been leaked and she's pointing a finger at the New York Attorney General's office. The former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, accused the New York State Attorney General's office of leaking to the press a list of donors to her conservative nonprofit, Stand for America. The list of anonymous donors was controversially published by Politico this week. And Haley said on Tuesday that she believes the New York State Attorney General, Letitia James, could be behind the leak. Haley said materials from Politico had a New York Attorney General stamp on it. Haley revealed she is filing a lawsuit against the office and will be trying to get the attention of Attorney General Merrick Garland to investigate the state attorney general's office. Nikki Haley said leaking a confidential tax return is against state and federal law. And look whose stamp is on the last page of the Stand for America filing leaked to the media this week. Liberal corruption strikes again, end quote. President Biden is calling for $37 billion to hire police officers and to ban assault weapons. The president vowed to ban assault weapons and fund police officers in a speech marking the first of three visits over the week to um, the political background of Pennsylvania ahead of November's congressional elections. Biden has called on Congress uh, for $37 billion for crime prevention programs and providing some of that money to police and to reduce gun crime, which has surged in the United States for reasons he did not address. The Democratic president also criticized Republican uh, lawmakers who have opposed his plans to fund law enforcement and cut gun violence. Well, they at least oppose half of that program. CBS says the president's crime prevention proposal calls for 13 billion over the next five years for communities to hire and train 100,000 additional police officers, as well as nearly three billion to help clear court backlogs and solve murders, according to the White House. The president's plan would also establish a 15 billion dollar grant program for cities and states to use over the next decade to um, promote approaches rather to prevent violent crime or identity nonviolent identify nonviolent situations that warrant a public health response with a goal of alleviating the burden on law enforcement officers. Another five billion would be used for evidence based community violence intervention programs. Trust between police and the public is vital, the president said, but he didn't address specifically how that would be carried out, nor did he address prosecutors across the uh, the globe who are allowing violent criminals to go free. The attempt would be taken better if his party is not actively attempting to defund and disparage the police at any chance they get. We need to take a break, but we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, Brian Stiller, author of From Jerusalem to Timbuktu, a world tour of the spread of Christianity. Well, Taiwan shot at a Chinese drone invading their airspace. Taiwan begun targeting Chinese drones flying over its uh, outlying islands for the first time, highlighting the risk that Beijing's military pressure on Taipei could lead to actual conflict. Soldiers in Kinmen, the Taiwanese-controlled island just off the Chinese city of Jiangmen, uh, shot at a Chinese drone for the first time on Tuesday afternoon, the Army Kinmen Defense Command said. It said the uncrewed vehicle then flew away in the direction of Jiangmen. 
The tensions have been especially high in the region since House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit earlier this month to the self-governing island that Beijing claims as its territory. China had warned for weeks against the brief trip, August the 3rd, by Pelosi, saying it violated the one China policy under which the United States recognizes Beijing as the sole legitimate government of China and has unofficial relations with the Democratic Taiwanese. Google is keeping former President Trump's Truth Social off of the Android App Store, citing issues of content moderation. The Postmillennial reports that a Google spokesman has revealed that former President Trump's social media platform, Truth Social, has been kept from Android devices because the platform allegedly lacks effective content moderation. This comes after Truth Social CEO Devin Nunez. He claimed last week that the Android version of the social media platform app is ready, waiting only on Google's approval. The delay marks a setback for the app, which launched in the Apple App Store on February 21st. Android phones uh, comprise about 40 percent of U.S. smartphones, um, the market. Without the Google and Apple stores, there's no easy way for most smartphone users to download Truth Social. Mikhail Gorbachev, who ended the Cold War without bloodshed but failed to prevent the collapse of the Soviet Union, died on Tuesday at the age of 91. Russian news agencies cited hospital officials as saying Gorbachev, the last Soviet president, forged arms reduction deals with the United States and partnerships with Western powers to remove the Iron Curtain that had divided Europe since World War II and bring about the reunification of Germany. Of course, he didn't do this willingly. He did this um, with the help, if I can put it mildly, of U.S. President Ronald Reagan and others. More on that later in the program. Afghanistan, one year later, not one senior Biden administration official nor military officer has resigned or been fired as a result of the withdrawal. That's a disgrace to our country. That's a quote from Army National Guard Colonel and Representative Mike Walls uh, stated on Tuesday, the one year anniversary of the day the last American troops left Afghanistan. He added because of their actions or lack thereof, the fallout of this debacle has irreparably harmed both our national security and global image, end quote. Now, a year after Joe Biden's uh, Afghanistan withdrawal and surrender to the Taliban, the situation for Afghanis has gotten predictably bad under the rule of these jihadis. Women specifically have uh, seen nearly all of the advances and freedoms they enjoyed for the last two decades of U.S. control effectively eliminated. Furthermore, Afghanistan has once again become a haven for al-Qaeda and ISIS terrorists as they arm up with the billions of dollars of U.S. military equipment left behind. Then there are the American citizens and thousands of Afghan allies that Biden abandoned to the mercy of the Taliban. A GOP majority must carry out public investigations in a manner that has broad jurisdictional oversight and subpoena power over the Department of State, the Department of um, Defense and Intelligence Community, Walsh asserted. We owe it to the 13 Gold Star families, the veterans who served in Afghanistan and to the thousands of allies we left behind, end quote. Attorney General Garland is seeking to intimidate FBI whistleblowers. On Tuesday, the attorney general issued a new policy to Justice Department personnel forbidding them from communicating with senators, representatives, congressional committees or congressional staff without advanced coordination, consultation and approval by the Office of Legislative Affairs. Garland claimed his motive was issuing the new policy directives was to prevent the Department of Justice actions from having the appearance of political influence. Now, I pause because that's pretty much laughable given where we stand today. 
Uh, while that does uh, uh, sound good on paper, the proof is in the pudding. The range of targets for the Garland-led DOJ too often smack of blatant political bias, a fact borne out by a growing number of FBI whistleblowers making claims of political bias among leaders in the agency. Garland's directive appears to be designed to tamp down on more potential whistleblowers contacting members of Congress, even as he seeks to claim otherwise. Garland has repeatedly demonstrated that honesty is not, well, his forte in this particular area. Just 9% of law professors are conservative, 9%. A new study conducted by professors from Georgetown University and MIT that sought to investigate the views of law professors in schools across the nation found that just 9.1% of 667 professors who participated identified as conservative compared to 77.9% who identified as liberal. The findings appear to reinforce the 2017 study conclusion that only 15% of law professors were conservative. It's much worse than that, only 9.1%. According to George Washington University law professor Jonathan Turley, the primary reason the vast majority of law professors lean to the left has everything to do with universities in general going left. For decades, uh, faculties have gradually reduced the number of conservatives and libertarians, though attrition and or rather through attrition and hiring practices. Turley observed once these... um, Uh, Faculties hit an ideological critical mass. Faculties have served to replicate their ideological views. And now these schools have become so biased that they have effectively become leftist echo chambers of intolerance and recrimination against any perspectives outside their own ideological views. Later in the program, we'll talk about one assistant principal who has admitted, at least he thought in private, to doing just that on the uh, school level. Well, the Ukraine war is depleting U.S. ammunition stockpiles, sparking Pentagon concerns. And as COVID eviction moratoriums expire, four million renters expect to be kicked to the curb. Republican Glenn Youngkin's approval hits 55 percent in blue Virginia. And Beto O'Rourke postponed campaign events due to an infection. And Reuters uh, wants us to know it's definitely not monkeypox. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, on this day in history, 1994, Russia officially ended its military presence in the former East Germany and the Baltic states. 1997, Princess Diana and her companion, Dodi Al-Fayed, are killed in a car accident in Paris. 2001, the last original episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood airs. Fred Rogers hosted 895 episodes of the show over 31 years. 2016, Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump meets with Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto in Mexico cities. City, rather. Well, voters in these uh, four states are going to decide abortion law on the ballot. And it's uh, rather interesting. That is precisely what the Dobbs decision was all about, allowing the states, the people, to decide in their respective states how abortion would stand. Well, voters in at least four states will have the opportunity in November to do just that. Voters in California, Kentucky, Montana and Vermont will decide abortion related ballot initiatives during midterm elections on the 8th of November. Michigan voters also may weigh in. Constitutional ballot initiatives are notoriously confusing and complicated, says the vice president of communications for Susan B. Anthony, Pro-Life America. Uh, That's why it's incumbent on the pro-life movement and pro-life Americans to fully educate themselves on exactly what each amendment before them would do. Already, voters in Kansas voiced their opinion August the 2nd, rejecting an amendment to the state constitution specifying that it does not include a right to abortion, a constitutional right in the the Kansas uh, document. 
Here's what's going on in four other states and maybe five. In California, California is one of three states, along with Kentucky and Vermont, where voters will consider amending their state constitutions regarding abortion, making it a state constitutional right. Californians will be asked on the 8th to vote yes or no on the right to reproductive freedom amendment. The proposed amendment would add a right to abortion to California's constitution. It reads, the state shall not deny or interfere with an individual's reproductive freedom in the most intimate decisions, which includes their fundamental right to choose to have an abortion and their fundamental right to choose or refuse contraceptives. This section is intended to further the constitutional right to privacy guaranteed by Section 1 and the constitutional right to not be denied equal protection guaranteed by Section 7. Nothing herein narrows or limits the right to privacy or equal protection. So this is a, an amendment to California's Constitution. The U.S. Supreme Court's decision on the 24th of June to overturn Roe v. Wade didn't affect abortion law in California. State law allows an abortion up until the time a a baby is considered viable around 24 weeks of pregnancy or to protect the life or health of the mother. And that is throughout the pregnancy. If voters approve California's pro-abortion amendment to the state constitution, it will provide a path for passage of legislation permitting late term abortions. We're going to need to take a break, but we'll continue to look at other states four, possibly five in total. That will be voting on abortion following the overturn of Roe versus Wade, returning the decision on the subject back to the people. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Just winding through uh, the states that will decide abortion law at the ballot uh, in the midterm elections, among them California and Kentucky. A vote yes on Constitutional Amendment 2 on the ballot in Kentucky is a pro-life vote. The no vote to abortion in a Constitutional Amendment, also known as Yes for Life, would add language to the Kentucky Constitution, stating that there is no right to abortion in this state. The ballot question reads, are you in favor of amending the Constitution of Kentucky by creating a new section of the Constitution to be numbered Section 26A to state as follows? To protect human life, nothing in this Constitution shall be construed to secure or protect a right to abortion or require the funding of abortion. Well, Kentucky's proposed amendment is uh, very straightforward, according to the executive director of the Family Foundation in Lexington. The pro-life amendment states that to protect human life, our Kentucky Constitution does not protect abortion or funding for abortion. Pro-abortion activists uh, with Protect Kentucky Access uh, write in their website that the proposed amendment would pave the way for the state to ban abortion in all cases. And, um, of course, there are two sides to that question. In Montana, they're taking steps to protect babies born alive during botched abortions. In November, Montanans will vote on a ballot initiative dubbed the Medical Care Requirement for Born Alive Infants Measure. The ballot measure asks voters whether they believe babies born alive after an abortion should be considered legal persons and given medical attention. It reads, an act adopting the Born Alive Infant Protection Act, providing that infants born alive, including infants born alive after an abortion, are legal persons requiring health care providers to take necessary actions to preserve the life of an uh, born alive infant, providing a, a penalty, providing that the proposed act be submitted to the qualified electors of Montana and providing an effective date. Now, it's it's really shocking to me that this has to be 
uh, spelled out that a baby born alive, even after an effort to end that child's life, uh, should be recognized as worthy of the life that has uh, failed to be snuffed out. Montana State Representative Lola Shelton Galloway, a Republican and sponsor of the legislation, said on the floor last year that the practice of infants dying because they are not wanted or not uh, planned is an abomination in God's eyes. She would uh, continue to fight for the most vulnerable. Uh, She went on to say, well, Montana law permits an abortion uh, up until a baby is considered viable around 20 weeks of pregnancies. In a prepared statement, Representative Kathy Kelger, a Democrat, said she opposes the initiative because this one-size-fits-all legislated standard of care not only interferes with medical practice, but denies physicians the ability to provide care that is necessary, compassionate, and appropriate to an individual woman's circumstance. In Vermont, if this passes, Vermont will have the most extreme abortion situation in the entire country. So says Matthew Strong, executive director of Vermonters for Good Government, Uh, referring to his state's ballot question on abortion. On Election Day, Vermonters will uh, vote yes or no on a proposed constitutional amendment called the Right to Personal Reproductive Autonomy Amendment. If approved, that amendment would add these words to the Vermont Constitution, that an individual's right to personal reproductive autonomy is central to the liberty and dignity to, to determine one's own life course and shall not be denied or infringed unless justified by a compelling state interest achieved by the least restrictive means. Vermont law currently allows abortion up to the time of birth. The Reproductive Liberty Amendment would protect every Vermonter's right to make their own reproductive decisions without interference from politicians as a spokesperson for the Vermont for Reproductive Liberty Ballot Committee. The pro-abortion organization spokesperson added that the amendment would prevent future restrictions on abortion in Vermont. The language of the proposed amendment is intentionally vague. Pro-life advocate uh, says of the um, of the uh, measure, personal reproductive autonomy is what the amendment proposes enshrining as a constitutional right. And because that is so vague, that will include anything our uh, very liberal Vermont court system decides falls under personal reproductive autonomy. Abortion is already legal through all nine months here in Vermont, the uh, representative Strong says, adding that the proposed amendment would go beyond Roe versus Wade. The measure, he says, is meant to permanently enshrine late-term abortion in our state constitution and also remove any ability to do any common-sense limitations in the future. And then there's Michigan. Michigan also may allow voters to decide whether to enshrine a right to abortion in the state constitution. The Michigan Board of State Canvassers will meet. Um, well, in fact, they met today to decide whether to include a pro-abortion initiative on the ballot. The Supreme Court sent this issue back to the states and uh, Michigan is taking it straight to the ballot box. That's what the Attorney General Dana Nessel, a Democrat, tweeted Uh, In June, referring to the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling in Dobbs, no more ambiguity, no more fear. Nessel wrote Um, this November, Michigan voters will not stand for anything less than a codified assurance of their freedom. End quote. Well, in the question, uh, if the question gets on the ballot and voters approve it, the Michigan Constitution would guarantee an individual's right to reproductive freedom. The proposed amendment reads, every individual has a fundamental right to reproductive freedom, which entails the right to make and effectuate decisions about all matters relating to pregnancy, including but not limited to prenatal care, childbirth, postpartum care, contraception, sterilization, abortion care, miscarriage management and infertility care. 
An individual's right to reproductive freedom shall not be denied, burdened, nor infringed upon unless justified by a compelling state interest. Apparently, the child in utero has no interest achieved by the least restrictive means. Notwithstanding the above, the state may regulate the provision of abortion care after fetal viability, provided that in uh, in no circumstance shall the state prohibit an abortion that in the professional judgment of an attending health care professional is medically indicated to protect the life or physical or mental health of the pregnant individual. Well, the proposed pro-abortion amendment also would protect individuals from being penalized or prosecuted for aiding or assisting women in receiving an abortion. A coalition of pro-life organizations challenged the other side's uh, petition to put the question on the ballot, raising concerns over typography errors in the uh, in the text. So the question of whether or not it will appear on the ballot remains unanswered at this point. Abortions currently are permitted in Michigan up until a baby is considered viable. Michigan's 1931 law prohibiting abortion remains on the books, but a court temporarily blocked that law from going back into effect after the Supreme Court overturned Roe in its Dobbs decision. The uh, pro-abortion measure is a confusing and extremely extreme constitutional amendment, and women deserve better than the devastating consequences it would force uh, on them, says um, the spokesperson for citizens to support Michigan women and children in an email. The proposed amendment contains a lot of hidden uh, in the text that voters, no matter their beliefs on abortion, don't support repealing parental consent, repealing health and safety standards to protect women and even allowing non-doctors to perform abortions. Uh, the pro-life uh, spokesman said. So those are the states, uh, four of which will be on the ballot. One is uh, questionable, but will likely be on the ballot uh, come election day for the midterm elections. Well, come 2035, California residents will uh, have to shop elsewhere for new gasoline-powered vehicles. On the 25th of August, the California Air Resources Board voted to require that all new cars sold in the Golden State from 2035 um, and 70 percent of cars sold from 2030 be battery powered electric plug in hybrid or hydrogen fuel cells, which uh, CARB considers to be zero emissions. The stated rationale, these cars produce fewer carbon emissions than cars with internal combustion engines. Emissions contribute to global warming and global warming poses a serious threat to the economic well-being, public health, natural resources and the environment of California. End quote. Well, everyone loves battery powered electric vehicles, especially when gasoline is over three to four dollars a gallon. Senator Debbie Stabenow tweeted that everyone should get an electric car. And although Tesla's and Ford F-150 uh, lightning pickup trucks might be fun to drive, these new uh, purchases might not be reducing greenhouse gas emissions and saving the planet. Batteries use fossil fuels for charging. The latest research shows that electricity for battery-powered vehicles is coming from coal and natural gas rather than renewables. Producing batteries results in emissions. Seventy percent of the world's electric batteries are produced in China, and 83 percent of China's energy comes from fossil fuels, according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration. Mining battery ingredients causes environmental damage. Those concerned about greenhouse gas emissions may also be worried about the negative effects on the environment of mining for battery components. 
Such mining disrupts the land in low-income countries, such as cobalt mining in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where abuses have been documented by Amnesty International. Lithium is another crucial component of batteries, and China, Chile, Argentina, and Australia are home to potentially damaging lithium mines, according to the Institute for Energy Research. And battery-powered electric vehicles are impractical and expensive. Pure battery-powered vehicles lack sufficient range to satisfy most customers, although 60 to 70 miles of range is enough for most trips. People buy cars for all circumstances, including vacations and cold weather. Something to think about in California and, of course, in the state of Washington and the state of Oregon that will dutifully follow suit. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. When we return, Brian Stiller from Jerusalem to Timbuktu, a world tour of the spread of Christianity. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and it happens to be the second hour of the program. My next guest writes that 2,000 years ago, the Christian church began on the day of Pentecost in the city of Jerusalem. Since then, the demographic center of Christian populations has made its way across Europe. With a surprising growth of the Christian community globally in the past 50 years, the demographic weight of Christianity in Africa and Asia has pulled this global center south and west. Demographers now place the center of population density city of Christians in Africa. I'm referring to the book From Jerusalem to Timbuktu, a world tour of the spread of Christianity, written by my guest, Brian C. Stiller. He is a global ambassador for the World Evangelical Alliance. He previously served as president of Tyndale University College and Seminary in Toronto and was the founder and editor of Faith Today magazine. In the 60s, he served as the director of uh, Montreal Youth for Christ, Toronto Youth for Christ, and Canadian president of YFC. He also served as the president of the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. Canada and uh, president of Tyndale University College and Seminary from 95 to 2009. Tyndale is the oldest standing institution of its kind in Canada. Since 2011, he has served as global ambassador for the World Evangelical Alliance, a global alliance that serves nearly 600 million evangelical Christians. And Mr. Stiller has hosted a national weekly television program, Cross Currents, and is the author of a number of books. We're talking about one of them today from Jerusalem to Timbuktu. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, wonderful to be with you. Boy, that, that's a mouthful you just gave. <laughs> well, you had to live it all. I just had to recall it. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm tired just listening to you. <laughs> well, let's talk about how you, you came to uh, this book and what it tells us about the Christian faith globally. You had just stepped down as a university and seminary president. You were invited to... Um, uh, immerse your life in Christian community as a global ambassador for World Evangelical Alliance. And this book really is a reflection of the focus that your your life took from that point forward. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, I was intrigued. I've always loved missions. I was raised in a minister's home uh, out in Saskatchewan, and I loved mission conferences, and I loved to travel when I was with Youth for Christ. I loved to see what God was doing globally. But when I came into this new role— with the World Evangelical Alliance. And let me just parenthetically just kind of identify the architecture mm-hmm. of the world Christian community. There are three basic world Christian communities. You've got the, the Roman Catholics, they're 1.2 billion. Secondly, you've got the World Council of Churches, which includes Orthodox, that's 500 million. 
And then you've got evangelicals, which is 600 million. So those are the three world Christian bodies. And so I serve as global ambassador of this, of this second largest group called evangelicals. When I was invited to serve in this capacity, you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an old white-haired guy. I'm, I'm in my late 70s. And so as I was asked to do this, I discovered that there was something going on globally that I had been aware of, but I had never seen the magnitude. And so in doing mission conferences, people would say, give us an update of what's going globally. So I began to think more specifically. And as I recognized, for example, in uh, 1960, there were 90 million evangelicals. Today, there are 600 million. Uh, Let's just go to Latin America. In 1900, there were 50,000 evangelicals. Today in Latin America, there's 100 million. So the obvious question is, what in the world Mm -hmm. happened? And as I began to investigate, I then worked with InterVarsity Press and decided that it was important for us to give a macro view of what have been the drivers that have grown this church. And evangelicals have grown faster in one period of history than any other religious grouping in the history of the world. And so that's what led me to investigate both by research and then through, I've been to about 85 or 90 countries and begin to see firsthand what was driving this church over the last number of decades. Now, before we talk about the the answer to that question, were you surprised? Um, and did you find that others who uh, benefited from your uh, investigation were, were surprised? Yes, they were. The missiologists, scholars, they, they tend to be uh, an inch wide and a mile deep. Uh, I'm a mile wide and an inch deep. (laughs) (laughs) And so what I try to do is go to 30,000 feet and look at the macro and see what are the major trends going on. And so what I did, I went to the scholars, uh, the the Global Center for Christianity out of of Gordon-Conwell with Todd uh, Johnson, uh, a a number of others, Patrick Johnston, uh, and then people around the world, Mark Hutchison from Australia. And as I began to work with them, and I, and, I, and I shared with them what I was seeing, they would then go back to their own studies and, and respond to me. And what I found, uh, the missiologists were saying, yes, that's a fair representation. Those are the big trends. You're on to something. Now tell the story. Now, in the West, um, as you point out, it's often assumed that secular ideas are taking over and the Christian faith is... Uh, is is dying or at least restricting rather dramatically. What you discovered is is quite different, but that uh, perhaps the eye of the of, of the, uh, the the church is shifted from the West to other parts of the world. Tell us a little bit about what might surprise us about this world tour of the spread of Christianity revealed. Well, uh, you and I live in North America, so North America and Europe has worked under the secular assumption that the more scientific our people become, the more modern society becomes, the more educated we become, the less will there be need for spiritual definition of life. And so sociologists were predicting this back in the 60s and 70s. What they found, of course, that the opposite was true, that as people become more educated, as they become better informed, the materialistic core of modern Western society simply doesn't compute with what people know instinctively is or isn't true. 
And so in that world, there is a movement towards faith that surprises us. Now, we recognize in North America that there's been a certain stalling of, of Christian faith. And now we're, of course, into this, this uh, very disturbing uh, political debate. But even so, the same number of people go to church in the U.S. today as went to church in the late 50s. So there is a, there is a continuity of faith, even though we have found there has been a, there's been a worldliness, there's been a secularity, there has been a materialism that has taken over some of us, some of the church in the West. The rest of the world have turned to Christian faith in ways that we never believed. For example, in, 2000, in 1910, at the first World Missions Conference, which was held in Edinburgh, they said that by the end of the 20th century, Africa will be, pro- will be primarily Muslim. Well, at that time, there were 8.9 million Christians in Africa. Today, there's 542 million. So everybody that was predicting on the basis of the advance of Islam or the advance of secularism and science, they were all wrong about those numbers. There is such a deep-felt need for, for spiritual life and answers that really only the gospel provides. You make the point that the metaphorical center of world Christianity has literally moved from Jerusalem to Timbuktu in the nation of Mali, which explains the title of your book. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a, a very curious thing. Uh, and again, we're talking about the center of density of the population mm-hmm. of Christians globally. So obviously, the center in, in three, 33 AD was Jerusalem. And then as Paul and the missionaries and the, the apostles went through Turkey and through Greece and Italy, and then as it expanded, and as the both Orthodox and the Catholic churches began to dominate, that center moved more to the center of Europe. But then as the gospel began to explode in the middle part of the 20th century, down through, Latin, down through Africa, Latin America, and Asia, again, it's the center of density began to move. And so as I was working on the book, I was uh, talking with Todd Johnson, who, uh, who heads up the Center for Global Christianity in Gordon-Conwell in Boston. And I had just read this book, uh, read this article, an old article from Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Athens, or what, is, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? So I'm thinking about cities, and I see this map that Todd had developed showing that the church started in 33 AD in Jerusalem, and it began, the center of density began to move across to Europe down into northwest Mali, and this last year, that center of density was Timbuktu. And so what popped into my mind was, there's the title for a book. <laughs> and an appropriate one. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do, do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking about the book by the title, From Jerusalem to Timbuktu, A World Tour of the Spread of Christianity. You will find it encouraging and inspiring. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. If you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, we're talking this afternoon with my guest, uh, uh, Brian C. Stiller. He's the author From Jerusalem to Timbuktu, A World Tour of the Spread of Christianity. Now, in addition to uh, Timbuktu sort of being the, the concentration of the Christian faith, talk a little bit about China and what demographers can tell us about uh, the Christian faith there. Well, China, of course, is a classic example of what happens when all of our methods seem to fail. Uh, in, 
1949, when Mao took over and uh, in 1952 forced all missionaries out, it's estimated that there were about 700,000 Christians in China. In China, earlier in the century, there had been developed the idea of three self. Actually, some British missionaries had designed this idea saying that mission activity needs to work in building up the infrastructure of the indigenous leadership to make a strong local church so that it isn't just a church that's a replication of another country. And so they developed this idea of the three self, that the church would be self-propagating, self-funding, and self-managing. And that idea began to grow in China, and it began to build a strong uh, core of leaders, pastors, evangelists, and teachers in China. Well, when Mao comes in in 49, throws the missionaries out in 52, he then, thinking that he is going to eliminate the effect of the church, he institutes nationally this idea called Three Self, saying if you're going to have a church, it's got to be self-funded, self-managed, self-propagated. Well, then the, the windows closed, and we we thought that the church was dying in China. In the late 70s, as the windows opened, all of a sudden we saw this dynamic church, then primarily in the underground church, but very strong. And of course, since then it's exploded. What Mao thought he would do by enforcing them to to eliminate any missionary influence, he did exactly what the spirit needed, which was to strengthen the infrastructure and the people of China themselves. And so under persecution, that grew. And then when persecution came off, it exploded. So today we moved from 700,000 Christians in 49 to somewhere between 100 to 140 million today. Absolutely um, amazing. You write that um, with its relocation of the Christian Center out of its centuries-long European habitat alerts us that much is going on. Um, you write about re-expressions of faith in five major ways. What are some of the ways that the re-expression of faith are, are taking place outside of uh, its former European center? Well, remember back in the, in, the, in, the, in the 20th century here in North America, the evangelical church basically withdrew from social political life, thinking that because Jesus is coming soon, we get people ready for eternity, and we forget about the social political issues of our day. All in the late 70s, early 80s, we realized how wrong that was, and so we re-engaged in social political life. Globally, those who were trained by Western missionaries also initially were taught what we believed, which was to stay out of social political life. But they realized that was an an enormous mistake, that their country needed Christian leaders as salt and light. And so around the world, there is is not this division between the church being serving in the church and serving in 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 civic society. There isn't that division that we have here. So that's one issue. The other issue is the understanding that the gospel speaks to all of life. So there's a holistic evangel that, that speaks about the salvation of the individual, the transforming of the person in the power and the presence of Christ, the work of the Spirit to lead us into holiness of life, but also speaks to the other issues so that every one of us, a doctor, a garbage collector, a teacher, a, a, a minister, we are all equally called as ministering servants of Christ, empowered by the Spirit, given gifts by the Spirit, and an anointing. And that has given a whole new understanding of the, of the ability of laity themselves to be empowered servants of Christ in their world. And I think that probably is the, is the most powerful element 
of what has happened, a uh, most powerful element that has helped to drive the church over the last 75 years. Mm. Let's talk about young people. The assumption has been, and, and perhaps in part rightly so, that the emergence of technology, uh, the emergence of con- the, the connectedness of the world, that young people would be less and less influenced by or interested in the Christian faith. What did your research reveal? Well, uh, you, you, of course, you've got two distinct worlds. You've got the, the European North American world, where young people are affected by secularism, and there is a there is a certain diminishing of interest in the traditional church that you and I have known. What I expect and what I am seeing is in creative uh, initiatives in finding ways to live out the life of Christ in different social patterns that I w- I've experienced. What we don't know is the what how this will format itself over the next few decades. What we do know is that the gospel is a is a reviving gospel. Uh, it comes every generation has got to decide for itself. As someone wrote, God has no grandchildren. My children have to decide. My grandchildren have to decide. And so you've got a reviving nature of the gospel by the Spirit that brings the gospel into each generation, and they will find ways themselves to express the gospel and to live out the gospel in ways that are consistent with their social experience. And so the social media, sure, it'll change, it'll repattern, but the the actual effect of the gospel will simply find its way in find its way into the lives of people in ways that are are strange and, and new to us. What did you hope your readers would uh, would take away from this book that gives us something of a map, if you will, uh, over time and certainly uh, in space, um, the the spread of Christianity, its influence in places that perhaps we have not considered? Well, first of all, this is Christ's church, and the Spirit, the agenda of the Spirit is to make Jesus known. Over the last hundred years, we have come to understand the Spirit in new ways, and that's a major part of the book. Well, I didn't realize how unknown the Spirit was at the beginning of the 1900s. That itself has given transformation to the Church and given it a, uh, a new understanding of the person of the Spirit, the gifts that He gives to us, and His anointing and empowerment in life. That, so for people to understand that and to, in their prayer life, to accelerate the activity of the Spirit globally. That's one thing. The second is to find ways to support in creative ways, not just financially, but in ways of encouragement, indigenous churches and ministries around the world. Those are two important things. And the third is is to encourage younger leaders in engaging in public civic life, taking every aspect of society recognizing that, as the Reformer once said, there's not one square inch of creation that God doesn't say, that's mine. Mm, Amen. Well, the book, once again, is titled From Jerusalem to Timbuktu, A World Tour of the Spread of Christianity. You will find it inspiring, challenging, and encouraging, as I did. And I thank you so much, Mr. Stiller, for taking the time to talk with us today. Wonderful to be with you. Really appreciate it. Uh, By the way, the book is published by InterVarsity Press. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break, and yeah, we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I have to say, and I'm going to talk more about this on Friday, but I have to say that I am in a bit of a stupor today because one of my beloved 
listeners, and by the way, I'll send a thank you note. One of my beloved listeners sent me a box, and in that box was a bag of circus peanuts and a bag of candy corn, two bags of candy corns. And I am a middle-aged woman, and I have to admit, I cannot resist circus peanuts. I'll eat one. I th- I'm going to eat a half a circus peanuts. Next thing I know, I've eaten a whole circus peanut, followed by another circus. I think it's because the concept of a circus isn't a lone event. It's, it attracts a lot of people. It's a, it's a public community event, and therefore my consumption of said candies becomes something of a community event. When I was little, my sister Donna and I would say, well, we're going to eat this one, but then that one's going to be lonely, so we need to eat another one so that there'll be fellowship in, uh, you know, in the, <laughs> in the belly. So maybe I still have some residual youth left. I can't really remember because I'm no longer a youth. But anyway, I'm a, in a bit of a stupor. But I, I want to I thank this listener. And I'll do that properly on Friday. But I just wanted to mention that if I seem... Like I might be slightly intoxicated. I've had enough sugar to feed a village. But oh, it was exquisite going down. Every morsel, every bite. It takes at least 20 to 30 chews to get the thing a swallowable, swallowable. But it was um, it was amazing. I'm starting on the candy corns next. Those will be tomorrow. I thought when I opened the bag, it was going to last me, oh, I don't know, three, four, five days. I'm I'm sure I didn't really think that because I've never been able to just eat one and I've never been able to eat a Tootsie Pop without biting. So there you have it. My deep, dark secrets made known. Okay, back to more serious and important issues. An assistant principal in Greenwich, Connecticut was uh, captured on undercover video admitting that he discriminates against conservative and Catholic teaching applicants so that he can better advance subtle progressive indoctrination in the classroom. Now, this is discouraging. It's not surprising. I've been around, but it's discouraging. Jeremy Boland, he's the assistant principal at Cos Cobb Elementary School, a public school. He told an undercover Project Veritas reporter that he oversees the hiring of faculty and rejects applicants not based on their experience, uh, not based on their recommendations, but Uh, who espouse conservative or Catholic beliefs, are older than 30, or sympathize with concerns about parental rights in education. Now, one wonders how many Jeremy Bolins are there out there, assistant principals who have decided they're going to shape the course of the future by simply eliminating their fellow countrymen with whom he shares, um, well, he shares very few beliefs. I'm not a huge expert on religion, but Protestants in this area of Connecticut are probably the most liberal. But if they're Catholic conservative, Boland said, that's another matter. We asked what he does when he learns a candidate is Catholic. Boland replied, you don't hire them. He reiterated that he would never hire a Catholic because if someone is raised hardcore Catholic, It's like they're brainwashed. You can never change their mindset. So when you ask them to consider something new, like a new opportunity, or you have to think about this differently, they're stuck, just rigid. So apparently a Catholic has no bandwidth for uh, any uh, thinking about uh, approaches to education, which is really what the school is all about, rather than indoctrination, which this vice principal has declared he is committed to. There is a conservative 40-year-old female teacher at Cos Cobb, who is stuck in her ways, Borland said. And of course, she represents all of Christendom because it's difficult to terminate a tenured teacher, which is something he would do if he could. 
I'll never be able to fire her and I'll never be able to change her, he said. Apparently, he sees that as his job. So I make an impact uh, with the next teacher I hire. Well, Koskob, according to Boland, specifically welcomes progressive teachers who will intentionally shape the minds of students with their ideology. Now, as parents in this Connecticut community, is that what they think teachers are charged with doing? Indoctrinating students with the teacher's ideology or providing a basic education so that the the students can think for themselves? Believe it or not, the open-minded, more progressive teachers are actually more savvy about delivering a democratic message. Also, it's a political message without really ever having to mention politics, he told the journalists. Certainly not understanding that they would reveal the contents of this conversation. Once they're teaching in a classroom, the progressive hires are careful about gradually inculcating their politics into school curricula. So it's subtle. They will never say, oh, this is a liberal or a democratic way of doing this. They'll just make that the norm, he said. This is how we handle things. It's subtle. That's how we get away with it, end quote. Well, the vice principal also evidently holds it against applicants if they show support for parental rights during the interview process. So someone sides with the parent. Then what? The reporter asked. Bolin said they don't get the job. Many Republican candidates have embraced parental rights as part of their platforms this year and have affirmed that parents are major stakeholders in education who must be represented. But Boland and the administrators at Cobb do not immediately respond to requests for comment based on the content of this um, interview. At the school, there's also no tolerance for teachers who address students according to pronouns that correspond with their sex rather than their gender preference, the vice principal suggested. So if you have someone, a teacher, who is hardcore religious or hardcore conservative, they will probably say something detrimental to the effect. Uh, Well, I don't uh, think kids have enough knowledge to make that decision, gender identity, at this age. Uh, You're out. You're done. The vice principal says he confessed religious and age based discrimination likely violates Connecticut law. But, you know, he has a greater picture in mind, violating the law, conforming to the very commitment that he's made to serve in his community. That's out the window. He's got other work to be done. A Democratic dominated state. Connecticut has been a hotbed for critical race theory initiatives, progressive pedagogy. Though the push has been met with significant parental resistance over the last two years. Earlier this month, the Greenwich County Day School, a private school in Greenwich, Connecticut, hosted a back to school event that was exclusive to families who identify as a racial minority. Now, when I was growing up, the fight was to integrate, to give access, uh, equal opportunity. Today, it's uh, turned everything on its head. Segregation is back. It's hot. It's the thing to do. It's hard to recognize today's America, at least by this middle-aged woman who lived through the civil rights movement and sought um, victory in areas that are now being overturned in the name of equity. Hmm. Well, like many teenagers, uh, Ethan Andrews started smoking marijuana during his sophomore year of high school in Colorado to help with his anxiety. He thought it was just weed. He didn't um, see the harm in smoking the popular drug containing THC, the active chemical found in cannabis that produces a high. Well, his casual marijuana use turned into smoking uh, potent cannabis flower and concentrates known as dabs, which contain high levels of THC. And he said he smoked every day from morning to night. And he's not all that unusual. I couldn't think or sleep without it, the 23-year-old said. Uh, When you're a stoner, you think, I'll be fine. In the future, I'll clean myself up. However, it was too late. 
two years after becoming an avid marijuana user. He was only 18 when he developed cannabis-induced psychosis. You ever heard about that? Cannabis-induced psychosis, a condition indulging severe, or rather including severe hallucinations, delusions, and paranoia. I had to quit my job because the voices in my head were so distracting, he said, adding that the worst symptom was confusing dreams with reality. I'd wake up and tell my friends, yeah, remember when we hung out and did this or that? They would have no idea what I was talking about. Well, a recent study review published by Lancet Psychiatry found high cannabis potency products are associated with a greater risk of psychosis and addiction called cannabis use disorder. The content of THC not many decades ago was about two to three percent. The director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse says um, that marijuana is considered high in potency if the product contains more than 10 percent THC. And the marijuana smoked by great grandparents and grandparents is not the marijuana of today. The uh, director goes on to say now the average content of THC in the United States is 14 to 16 percent. There are cannabis varieties that have a, a content that goes to 30 percent THC. Today, manufacturers have found ways to add marijuana into vaping devices, edible and wax that can contain nearly 100 percent pure THC. But it is not without consequence. Currently, 19 states in Washington, D.C. have legalized recreational marijuana. Thirty seven states have approved medical use. Uh, And the director uh, says that that doesn't mean cannabis use is harmless, especially on adolescent brain development. The consumption of marijuana as a young person modifies the brain in ways that make it worse, makes it more susceptible later on uh, that rewarding and addictive effects of other drugs. So you start to mess around with smoking marijuana. You're going to interfere with the process, which is crucial because ultimately uh, who you are uh, very much is a reflection of how your brain works. Well, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, alongside Senate Finance Committee Chairman uh, Ron Wyden and Senator Cory Booker, recently introduced the Cannabis Administration and Opportunity Act, aiming at legalizing cannabis on a federal level and establish a federal cannabis tax. States like Massachusetts, Colorado, California, where it's uh, already illegal, are already benefiting from state and local taxes. And that insatiable appetite for more money throws out the uh, concern for the health and the consequence to those who indulge in what we now approve. Just something to think about. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Congressional Budget Office is predicting in a demographics report it published back in July that by 2043, the population growth in the United States will be entirely driven by net immigration. By 2043, deaths exceed births, says the CBO report. Population growth after that point is driven entirely by net immigration. Well, over the course of the next decade, immigration accounts for about three quarters of the overall increase and the size of the population and the net effects of fertility and mortality account for the remaining quarter, uh, says the report. After 2032, population growth is increasingly driven by net immigration, which accounts for all population growth. In 2043 and beyond, it says population growth is determined by births, deaths and net immigration. The report goes on to say in the projections, fertility rates remain low and immigration becomes an increasingly important part of the overall population growth. And given our current situation on the uh, southern border, 
That's not hard to believe, except that it would take until 2043 for that to be the case. Well, the Institute for Faith and Freedom responded to the death of Mikhail Gorbachev, who has met his maker, as their headlines suggest. Uh, Dr. Paul Kingor, who's the uh, um, the editor, wrote a column that appeared in the American Spectator in which he writes that when I heard about the death of Mikhail Gorbachev, I sighed. He was one of the final remaining pivotal figures in the end of the Cold War. Gorbachev, Ronald Reagan, Pope John Paul II, Margaret Thatcher, uh, Vaclav Havel, Boris Yeltsin and Lech Walesa. Only Walesa remains. Gorbachev was 91 years old, living much longer than many expected. It's an historic loss. Aside for an added reason, I have written so much about Gorbachev in so many articles and books that it's just impossible to try to sum up the man's life and legacy where to begin. It's a daunting task, but I think I can add two worthwhile things that others will ignore or get wrong in their tributes to Gorbachev. First, most of the world will focus on Gorbachev's role in the collapse of the USSR and invoke him as the hero of Soviet disintegration. The truth is not so tidy. In reality, Gorbachev's goal all along was to preserve the USSR. Unlike Ronald Reagan, whose goal was to break up the Soviet Union, Gorbachev tried to keep it together, so much so that he repeatedly used force in several Soviet republics, including the Baltic states, in his final years in power. To his credit, Gorbachev wanted a kinder, gentler, non-totalitarian Soviet Union, even a politically pluralistic one. In February of 1990, he formally stripped the Communist Party of the Soviet Union of its role, its sole monopoly on political power, when he repudiated Article 6 of the Soviet Constitution. That was a huge positive change, and only he had the power to enact it. But still, he strove to keep the Union together. He said so publicly until the very end. That end came providentially on the 25th of December, 1991. It was, of course, Christmas Day, a celebration that um, Bolsheviks banned in the USSR. That day, Gorbachev called President George H.W. Bush to say, you can have a very quiet Christmas evening. I am saying goodbye and shaking your hand. He informed Bush of the inevitable, namely, he was resigning his position as head of the USSR, a country that by then effectively no longer existed because every single republic had declared independence in 1990 and 1991. That evening, Gorbachev went on Soviet television to announce he was resigning his post. He began his December 25th resignation speech by noting that he had stood firmly for the preservation of the Union state, the unity of the country. Well, events went a different way. The policy uh, prevailed of uh, dismembering this country and disunifying the state, with which I cannot agree. He lamented the breakup of Soviet statehood and the loss of, curiously, a great country. Gorbachev would reiterate that position over and over in years ahead. In April of 2006, he told the USA uh, Today that the Soviet Union could have been preserved and should have been preserved. No, it should not have. As Ronald Reagan said, it was an evil empire and it was time to shut it down. Gorbachev helped shut it down, but the way uh, the way it unraveled was not what he intended. Still, he deserves credit for helping to peacefully end the Cold War that few of us would have expected to end peacefully. If you had told any of us in 1981 that by 1991 the USSR would cease to exist, we might have assumed it was annihilated by nuclear Armageddon. That nuclear nightmare never occurred, and that was a credit to Gorbachev, to Reagan, to John Paul II, Thatcher, and the other great leaders of that day. Great leaders, I must add emphatically, that do not exist on the world stage right now. 
Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin and Pope Francis are plainly not Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev and Pope John Paul II. We are impoverished today. We suffer badly for lack of statesmen. The second thing that I can and must add to the matter of the life of Gorbachev is that one that matters most at this time of death, his faith. And that, too, is very complicated. Born in March of 1931, Gorbachev was secretly baptized as an infant by his mother, Maria. He later told Vatican Secretary of State uh, Casroli that his mother would surreptitiously remove an icon from the wall and bless him with it. Three of his grandparents were Christians. When Reagan first met Gorbachev at Geneva in November of 85, he was immediately taken by Gorbachev's religious references, which were plainly remarkable coming from the leader of what Reagan rightly called an evil empire, certainly an atheist empire. Reagan became deeply intrigued at the possibility that Gorbachev might be, in Reagan's words, a closet Christian. When he arrived home from Geneva, Reagan immediately called Michael Deaver. He said of the new current leader of Lenin's and Stalin's atheistic state, he believes an incredulous diva responded to the president and longtime friend. Are you saying the general secretary of the Soviet Union believes in God? Reagan walked his statement back, but only a tiny bit. I don't know, Mike, but I honestly think he believes in a higher power. Well, Gorbachev proceeded to suggest that with his stunning overtures on behalf of religious freedom, rolling back his predecessor's brutal wholesale war on religion, as Gorbachev uh, described it, atheism took rather savage forms in our country, he lamented. It did indeed, and Gorbachev called off the war on religion. Pope John Paul II most certainly noticed and appreciated Gorbachev's glasnost. The two men respected each other and reached out to each other. In December of 89, Gorbachev became the first and only Soviet leader to visit the Vatican. Like Reagan, John Paul II was cautious, not knowing for sure if Gorbachev was privately a closet Christian. Nonetheless, the Pope considered the general secretary to be a providential man. He believed that God was surely working through this very different Soviet leader. I'm sure that providence paved the way for this meeting, he told Gorbachev. But did Mikhail Gorbachev believe in God? That is a subject that not only perplexed Reagan and John Paul II, but also Reagan's son, Michael, and Reagan's closest aide, Bill Clark. I was Clark's biographer, and Clark was an avid reader of the American Spectator, and he and I and Michael Reagan many times discussed the subject of Gorbachev's faith, or lack of faith. We all tried to get answers. Uh, Michael once asked Gorbachev directly to his face if he believed in God and was frustrated that he couldn't get an answer. I tried to interview Gorbachev for my 2004 book, God and Ronald Reagan, where I first wrote about Gorbachev's faith. The old Leninist wanted a minimum of $10,000 for the interview. Yes, seriously. Mike Reagan advised me not to pay up, given that Gorbachev was not going to tell me what I wanted to know and uh, given that I didn't have that sort of uh, cash. A more productive outreach was initiated by Bill Clark. Clark learned of Gorbachev's quiet, intriguing fascination with St. Francis of Assisi, which the London Telegraph reported in March of 2008, when a British reporter very unexpectedly happened upon the figure of Mikhail Gorbachev in apparent prayer on his knees in the tomb of St. Francis. I read the Telegraph piece and quickly emailed it to and called Clark and Mike Reagan. I immediately drafted an op-ed for Mike to review and co-author. No sooner did we finish a draft to send to Christianity Today than did Gorbachev publicly step forward to insist that he had not become Christian, declaring the Telegraph reports to be false or at least premature. Our op-ed was dead, but the story of Mikhail Gorbachev's evolving faith was not. 
Bill Clark had been Ronald Reagan's most important aide in seeking to win the Cold War and undermine an evil empire. He was a very devout Catholic. Now, post-Cold War, Clark turned his attention to the soul of Mikhail Gorbachev. Clark immediately began working the phone and his diplomatic contacts, as he had 25 years earlier, as Ronald Reagan's top aide in foreign policy. He told me that he had heard from informed religious friends who knew Gorbachev that the word is that he has converted but doesn't quite know how to talk about it or deal with it publicly. The reasons for Gorbachev's reluctance would always remain a mystery. Clark, however, didn't give up. Clark labored with friends in Russia, notably a friar uh, that uh, wanted to remain anonymous, who had the connections to get to Gorbachev, a rare Russian translation of the works of St. Francis. Clark arranged to have the collection hand-delivered to the former general secretary. Clark's outreach proved quickly fruitful. Two weeks later, on the 24th of April, Clark called me and told me that Gorbachev wanted to meet with him to talk about St. Francis and the Christian faith generally, a process which, said Clark, is in the process of being arranged. They worked together to arrange that meeting, but alas, it never happened. Geography and health limitations made it overwhelming. So, did Mikhail Gorbachev ever become a Christian? We never found out. Gorbachev took the answer to that question to his grave. In the end, that's the question that matters most. What Mikhail Gorbachev did in this world had huge consequences, but the consequence that matters most are eternal consequences. However, Gorbachev knew, and God knows, and that's what's most important. But it is an intriguing question when you consider someone who on the world stage had such significant impact that in the final analysis, his relationship to God through his son, Jesus Christ, is all that really matters. And of course, that's true for every one of us who will have a far less of a platform, not only on the world stage, but on any stage. But what we do with Christ ultimately matters most. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Sam Maupin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. By the way, that was Dr. Paul Kangor with the Institute for Faith and Freedom. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back, well, tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.